1: the 222 of the bowery boys who murdered helen jewett hey it's the bowery boys hey support for the bowery boys is provided by our listeners join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash bowery boys hi there welcome to the bowery boys this is greg young and this is tom myers Today, we tell the dramatic tale of a tragic crime that occurred late at night on April 9th, 1836. This is the story of the murder of a young woman named Helen Jewett. This is one of the most famous crimes
2: in New York City history, partially because it exposes an underworld and brought it to public attention in the most dramatic and traumatic way.
1: This is a story of love and passion, but also of salacious vice and crime. And it was also the first major murder scandal that was covered by the New York press, by the penny press, the tabloids.
2: I would say that the hubbub surrounding this particular court case was one of the first courtroom scandals that really drew national
1: attention. Right. So today we'll be discussing prostitution in early 19th century New York, but we'll also be discussing a change that was taking place in the city as young men by the tens of thousands were leaving their hometowns and their moral compasses behind as they moved to a city of new opportunities and new jobs. But it was also a city of boarding houses and, you know, other distractions like brothels.
2: We'll give you all the details of this gruesome murder and recount the colorful characters which packed that
1: courtroom in the early summer of 1836. So jurors, take your seats and pay attention as we present all the evidence in the murder of Helen Jewett. It was late at night on Saturday, April 9th, 1836, after 3 a.m. to be precise. A client knocked on the door at Rosina Townsend's brothel, which was located in a fashionable townhouse that sat on Thomas Street, three blocks north of Chambers, near the intersection of Chapel Street, which is today's West Broadway. He knocked at the door at 3 a.m. This wasn't particularly strange, even if it was quite late, Rosina hoped that the his lady friend, would come downstairs and let him in. But no, a few minutes later, he knocked again, and she had to get up out of bed and let him in. The man, James Ashley, rushed up the stairs to get to the bedroom of Elizabeth Salters. But something grabbed Rosina's attention. She noticed that something was strange in the house. There was a small lit lamp still sitting in the parlor on the ground floor. That shouldn't be lit should be upstairs it could only belong in one of two bedrooms so she headed back to retrieve it when she noticed that the door to the backyard was also open which seemed odd but perhaps it was just left open by a client who was you know using the outhouse back in in the courtyard she called out back to see if anyone was was there but there was no response so she locked the door and headed up the stairs with the lamp to put it back in one of the bedrooms where it belonged She headed to the first bedroom and found it locked, which meant that, you know, that the occupant had a visitor that night, so it must belong in the other bedroom, which belonged to Helen. Rosina tried her door, and it was unlocked, so she she pushed it open, but was met with a cloud of smoke and flames. She screamed fire, and another tenant on the second floor screamed outside to get the attention of night patrolmen to call for the local firemen, But meanwhile, panicked women and their male clients woke to the screams and smoke that started filling the home as Rosina and others pushed inside Helen's room to rescue her and pull her to safety. But instead, they found a most gruesome scene. Helen, dead in her bed. Killed not by flames, but by being violently struck in the head, it seemed by a hatchet as a side of her body had already succumbed to the fire. Who could have possibly committed such a horror? Who was the last man to have been with Helen Jewett?
2: Well, Tom, you've set up quite a mystery there. The bare facts of the case, the murder of Helen Jewett. But let me put that story in context. Let us now pull back and describe the era in which we are discussing for this tragic event took place in the year 1836. Mm -hmm. We can even say this is a true mystery by Gaslight, for in the year 1836, Gaslight was available on most major avenues by this time. It was a recent addition, it had just been installed a few years earlier. So this is one of many new innovations that is coming into New York City in the 1830s. It's also beginning to tip over into chaos, for this is the era right before massive levels of immigration. And there was there was definitely immigration at this time, mostly from England and Ireland. Many of these newcomers who were already arriving into New York, uh, those of lesser means, were settling around the area of the Bowery. And this newish development called Paradise Square was just beginning to sink into squalor and would, of course, later be known
1: as five points. Right. Now, and this is the area that's just to the east and north of City
2: Hall. Now, the more fashionable people of New York City in the 1830s were moving just north of Paradise Square. You know, okay. this is just a big trend that the richer people are always moving north, mm-hmm. right? Well,
1: so, they have carriages and things. They can get
2: back <laughs> yeah, downtown exactly. to if they need to. So they were moving around the area of Washington Square, Astor Place leaving this former residential area of Lower Manhattan. And so as a result, those formerly fine townhouses were becoming slightly less desirable accommodation.
1: So these formerly fashionable townhouses were to the west of Broadway. Right. And we'll get to the fate of those in just a second. But if we're talking about the city geography and the city in 1836, Mm -hmm. hadn't there just been a Great Fire the year before? Oh yeah, let's never forget
2: the Great Fire of 1835. We have an old podcast on this to recount the details. An oldie but a goodie. An oldie but a goodie essentially destroyed much of Manhattan below Wall Street and east of Broadway. And that was in December of 1835. Yeah, so just a few months previous. And a lot of that was still, you know, in ruins. So just to keep in mind, like where the action of this story is, is slightly north of the burnt district and west on the other side of Broadway. Okay. We will be spending our time here in today's Tribeca neighborhood, in particular at an address 41 Thomas Street at the corner of. Thomas and Chapel, which is today's West Broadway, as you mentioned.
1: Wow. So a very fashionable address today. Yeah. And still, it was fashionable back then, even if it was losing some of its uh, luster. It lost a lot of its luster,
2: actually. And lost it due to a very big open secret in New York society at that time. And that is prostitution. Prostitution in New York City would actually gain quite a bit of prominence in the 1830s as both the supply and the demand grew as the population of New York was growing. Even by the year 1830, there were more than 200 brothels in the city, not counting regular streetwalkers, such as those who caroused the ports of New York in areas like Corlears Hook, and not even counting those who solicited the body
1: theaters along the Bowery. 200 houses made... More. Even more. We don't even know the number. Wow, more than 200... And these were not just located in the seedier districts in town? Yeah, not the neighborhoods you would expect
2: these sort of establishments to spring up. Now, the notion of prostitution in New York is a huge subject, which commands its own show someday in the future. But in essence, just as you had highbrow entertainment in New York and lowbrow entertainment, You also had so-called high-end and low-end prostitution in the city already by the 1830s.
1: But today's story about Helen Jewett concerns a high-end brothel. Right. right,
2: yes. In fact, sometimes we would, I guess, even consider what was being offered by these places was more of a courtesan, okay. of a companion. Now, the this area during the 1830s, the concentration was in the area of today's Tribeca, the streets of Thomas, Leonard, and Duane Street, which was the extension of an older prostitution district that lie just north of the World Trade Center. Now, Tom, do you remember who owned the land here in this area, the area just north of the World Trade Center.
1: Well, I believe the Trinity Church owns a lot of the the land around here, but it couldn't be them. No, it's Trinity Church. In fact, the
2: original prostitution district, which was just south of here, was originally called the Holy Ground.
1: Whoa, okay. I'm I'm sure that that wasn't the only thing it was called. Oh, no.
2: no. So this sort of prostitution district for today's story is set around Tribeca. But then later in the century, it would even expand and grow larger, but would be even further north of here in the area of today's Soho. In fact, by the 1850s, Tom, there were actually more brothels in Soho in the mid-19th century than there are overpriced boutiques today. (laughs) (laughs)
1: But how could there be such rampant prostitution? Weren't the police uh, going to crack down on any of this? That's the curious thing about this era in
2: particular, is that there wasn't a real demand to shut down this industry. Not until the major social reforms, at least of the mid-19th century. It was just a fact of city life. It was a fact of city life. Tragically, for many single women, prostitution was one of the more common ways to actually make a living. It was hard to get a job if you didn't have a husband or if your husband died or if he had left you. But as a result, women had very little protection and recourse at this time, especially, though, in those lowbrow brothels that were up near the ports or around the Bowery. But then the other reality here, and another reason why there were so many of them, is in a sexually repressed culture, there was a huge demand for these brothels.
1: And at a time here in the 1830s when the city's going through such tremendous growth, and you have all of these young men moving to the city to seek their fortune.
2: Right. You had so many single young men moving to New York, then working at the port industries, or in finance, or mercantile, young men both rich and poor. So it gave rise to a, I would say a somewhat dangerous and rampant machoism, which is often referred to as the sporting man culture of mm-hmm. the eighteen thirties and eighteen forties.
1: Sporting men like they were going to the the racetracks or they were working out together? I don't think any of these men were
2: doing anything athletic. There there were few actual sports going on. In essence, it was sort of the bro culture of the early 19th century.
1: Mm. So all these young guys moved to the city, they lived together in boarding houses, and they work together in, in these shops and in these docks, and then go out on the town to have fun, I take it.
2: Right, because of this influx of young men, there was an infrastructure to satisfy their needs from brothels to taverns. You can imagine then that these places that catered to sporting man life, then here comes several decades of mass population that then come later. Well, then this underworld explodes, but it's kind of born here in the 1830s. Young men who are divorced from families and responsibilities Let out upon this chaotic urban landscape with, you know, a little change in their pockets. So today's story will feature a woman who is caught up in the world of prostitution, but on the high end and in certain control of her fate maneuvering through this world. It also features a man, actually a teenager, who we can describe as a sporting man. So tell us a little bit about Helen Jewett. Where was she from?
1: While Helen Jewett was not her real name, many of these ladies took on pseudonyms, working names. Helen was born Dorcas Doyen on October 18th, 1813, in the small town of Temple, Maine. Her name is Dorcas Doyen. Yes, well, Dorcas. Wow, well, Dorcas is not a name that you hear much anymore. But it is, it is a very old name, old biblical name. Details of her early life are, are a bit sketchy. Her father was a shoemaker, and her mother died when Dorcas was just a young girl. Now, her, her father remarried... But the young girl was sent off to work as basically a servant girl for wealthy families. And when she was just 13 years old, she started working in the home of Judge Nathan Weston, who was the chief justice of the Maine Supreme Court. So she landed with a very good family. She was 13 years old. Well, that wasn't terribly uncommon. I mean, her her family may not have been able to support her, and the Westons were basically pledging to take care of her and see to her education in exchange for housework until she turned 18. The Westons lived in Augusta, Maine. Uh, they had two daughters and four sons. So she had a lot to do, and she learned from them proper manners. She loved reading novels and big adventure stories and poetry. However, something happened in Dorcas's life, It sounds like she lost her virginity, perhaps, at this point when she was living with the Westons, and they decided that it was better for her to leave their house. Uh, The judge would later write in the press that she left the household in the fall of 1830 when, quote, words of her disadvantage had reached the ears of Mrs. Weston, by whom seduced I do not know. Because, think, Judge Weston had his family's reputation to think of as well, and they didn't want somebody of this character living in the house. Mm -hmm. She moved off to Portland, where she became a prostitute, and took on the name of Maria Stanley. Lived there for a while, then off to Boston, and then finally off to New York, where she took on the name Helen Jewett. Sometime referred to as Ellen as well, which becomes very confusing when you're doing research on this story because sometimes you see her name Helen and sometimes you see it as Ellen. Well, there's a lot of pseudonyms throughout this story, and not just Helen, Ellen,
2: Dorcas, but many other characters have have pseudonyms as well.
1: Because the male clients took on pseudonyms as well. They didn't necessarily want to reveal to people in the brothel what their real name was. But Helen worked at a number of different brothels, before winding up here on Thomas Street. So Helen, we're now calling her Helen. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did she find her clients? Well, she was known by sight uh, by many men who worked downtown because of her near-daily trips to the post office. Because it turns out that Helen was quite a letter writer. That was part of her whole mystique. Uh, because she was into novels and poetry and you know fanciful writing, she would maintain correspondence with many of her suitors, and she would write these men uh, regular letters to keep up, you know, correspondence and to keep them coming back, to keep her business going, And she would mail them at the post office that was located in a building on Wall Street up until the Great Fire of 1835, at which point it moved to another building just east of City Hall. But both of these spots were really in the middle of the, you know, the city's business Mm -hmm. district. So she was a regular sight walking along, you know, the city sidewalks and down along Wall Street in her beautiful gowns clutching a letter, and and notably making eye contact with men on the sidewalk. But I think
2: it's very notable that I think one of her powers, one of her allures is that she was so very educated that, that she was able to craft all of this correspondence and kind of keep up with it while also keeping up her physical presentation.
1: Absolutely. And I think that she was so literate and so knowledgeable of romantic writings that men really fell in love with her. As well, which might seem a bit ironic because of her position in life as a prostitute, but it does seem that she really did want to develop a romantic relationship with these men as well.
2: So, who were some of her quote unquote notable clients here?
1: Well, this story really concerns two in particular. A man named Marston who went by the pseudonym Mr. Easy or Bill Easy. Mr. Easy? Yes. He was very much in love with Helen. He was a regular. She would help out with his sewing and embroidery because that was one of her other talents that she had. She was also talented with needlework. And that also helped fulfill, in a way, this sort of fantasy That she was more than just somebody who men paid to have sex with. They were developing this mutual relationship with each other. That
2: she had a domestic and even respectable quality about her.
1: That's right. Now, another man who frequented Helen was named Richard Robinson, but he went by Frank Rivers. He's central to this story. So we'll get into him much more Mm -hmm. in a second here. When you read the letters and the correspondence of Helen, you see that she met many of these men at the theater, at the Park Theater, at the Bowery Theater, up in the top tier where the prostitutes would hang out. And many of the letters concern, like, um, you know, I'm so happy to see you at the theater the other night, or men who felt jilted by being brushed off by, by Helen at the theater. So she would be approached, she would take on some men who she met at the theater and others she would, you know, walk away from.
2: So let me take us back to the tragic event in which we started this show on the date of April 9th, 1836 at 3 a.m. late night, when Ms. Rosina Townsend walked up the steps to investigate a disturbance which had occurred in the parlor. And that is when she opened the door of Helen Jewett's room and found the woman had been horribly murdered by a hatchet and her body burned in a fire that was intentionally set. So what did Rosina do after she discovered this horrible sight?
1: Well, eventually the police came, of course, and as did the fire department, and they put out the fire. And just a few hours later, police officers headed off to 101 Maiden Lane to apprehend young Richard Robinson, to take him to the scene of the crime. So that was the aforementioned Frank
2: Rivers. So we're going to call him Robinson for the rest of the story, right? Just to, like, make it easier?
1: (laughs) Yes. Let's... There are too many names here. So, yes, Richard Robinson. Uh, They took him to the scene of the crime to look over the evidence and to even view Helen. And... Weirdly he showed very little emotion. He didn't he didn't react in a way that you would expect a young man who frequented her, who was in love with her judging by his letters, he didn't react the way that you would expect. He was very cool and calm and almost dismissive.
2: Curious. And what was Robinson's backstory here? Where did he work? Where was he from?
1: Well, he was a 19-year-old guy, uh, from all reports, very attractive, a youthful face, curly gold locks on his forehead. He was born in Durham, Connecticut, a town that's between uh, New Haven and Hartford, to a prestigious family. His father served many terms in the state legislature. Now, Richard Robinson had moved to New York and started working at Joseph Hoxie's store down on Maiden Lane and he was living nearby in a boarding house with a bunch of other guys so he was a clerk at a respectable company and he a store m- and when did he meet helen they had met just in june of 1835 so less than a year before the murder they immediately started you know a standard courtship Uh, writing these love letters back to each other, many of which would be shared by the police with newspapers. And they traced a familiar story here with meetings at the theater, nights spent together deeply, you know, romantic passages shared in letters and poems shared, but also notably as proof of their commitment to each other. Robinson even gave her his miniature to guard and to wear when she wanted to feel close to him. Like a little cameo. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it's like a tiny little bust, like Mm -hmm. a tiny little portrait that's chiseled and could be worn like a brooch. Oh, wow. How bizarre. Well, not quite bizarre. I mean, she was also a pretty savvy businesswoman because she was, you know, uh, developing this relationship with him as she did with other men. But she was also requiring his fidelity that he would only come to see her, not the other ladies in the brothel and not ladies at other brothels as well. But things would take a turn for the worst by the end of the year. He started writing um, in his letters to her in a a troubling way about dark and moody periods, especially at night when he would entertain dark thoughts. And he referenced a secret that only she seemed to know. So they brought Robinson to the
2: scene of the crime here and he Acts in this rather cold, impersonal
1: way towards the scene. Right. To the death of his mistress. Well, the police quickly gathered what was called a coroner's jury, which is a fascinating (laughs) uh, topic because they gathered people who were nearby to issue an indictment and see if, you know, the public at large thought that there was sufficient evidence to hold this man in custody. So they just plucked people off the street, gathered them around, presented the case And already, they had a case against Robinson, for they presented not just the fact that he was acting oddly, but they had also found a cloak, that is an overcoat, that had been dropped in the backyard, presumably when somebody made their escape. This was a coat that the other ladies of the brothel recognized as belonging to Robinson. They also found a hatchet, a hatchet that had been tossed in the backyard, that could be traced back to Robinson's place of employment. And they also noticed that on Robinson's leg was a smudge of white paint that most likely came from jumping over the white fence in the backyard.
2: Well, jurors,
1: these are just some of the facts of the case.
2: Did Frank Rivers, a.k.a. Richard Robinson, kill Helen Jewett? We'll get to the dramatic court case after this. So, Tom, you've described... A horrific, gruesome, and mysterious murder, and identified the chief suspect in this particular murder.
1: Mm-hmm. Who has been apprehended.
2: And significant clues, such as a cloak, which has been left on the scene, and a hatchet. But although these sorts of crimes were not commonplace, neither Helen nor Richard were
1: nationally known figures. Right. But this case would take on a national importance, right? It would be covered in newspapers around the country. Why was that? Well, it starts, of course, with New Yorkers becoming caught up
2: in the hysteria surrounding this event. Because this story exposed an open secret, New York's network of prostitution, and the number of men and women who were caught up in this particular underground Industry. Also, because of the brutality of the incident and the melodramatic discovery, well, suddenly New Yorkers were kind of forced to pay attention to this story. As Mayor Philip Hone would later describe it, quote, this on April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC, To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC.
3: Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more As we approach the 2024 presidential election, listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive, take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is, conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute and craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday, because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.
2: This is the most awful case of depravity, murder and arson, the fruits of licentiousness and bad passions. So because of the dramatic nature of the details of this story. By the time the trial began on June 2nd, someone else was paying very close attention. And that, of course, was the press. And what was
1: the newspaper scene in New York in the 1830s?
2: Well, this was a big turning point for the American press. Prior to the 1830s, newspaper reading was not a particularly common practice. Newspapers were expensive. They were printed at a lower volume, and they were geared to wealthier readers, with the front page being boring lists of business transactions, Mm. arriving ships, and that sort of thing. Oh, that can be kind of exciting. Oh, Oh, sure. I mean, you go through it. It's kind of interesting to see, like, which shipping vessel has arrived in New York that afternoon. (laughs) But in the 1820s, with the improvement of the printing process, publishers could print more copies. This didn't mean, of course, that more people were buying them, so they needed to change their tactics with how they were selling these things.
1: And how did they do that? They decided to cover more than just arriving ships? (laughs) Well, in 1833, the enterprising
2: newspaper, The New York Sun, founded by Benjamin Day, well, he priced his newspaper to a penny. And, of course, other newspapers of the day then began following suit. So he forced the competitors to drop their cover price? Yes, it was a race to get as many new readers as possible. But in order to sell at this lower rate, you, of course, needed more provocative things. You needed stories to continue for several days to get people to return and on a regular basis by your newspaper. The other key element here is if all the newspapers are being sold for a penny and they're all Covering the same thing, well, they could just buy your competitor's paper on any other day of the week. So what your paper needed to do was have exclusives, and it needed to have a very defined point of view.
1: Right, which could mean that your paper would take a specific angle that mm-hmm. other papers didn't take, or that perhaps you might just fabricate a story entirely. <laughs> Such as with something we mentioned
2: last year in our show on The Great Hoaxes, just several months before the events of this show, when The Great Moon Hoax appeared in the press and captured the imagination of New Yorkers, even though the whole thing was fabricated.
1: So these papers must have had a field day with, with a murder in a brothel. Well, this was a perfect storm
2: of scandal, sex, murder, and a continuing story, one that developed, meaning that you had to keep buying the newspapers to get the latest information on this. By this point, that front page, that boring old front page began to break down, and these sorts of stories began to appear on the front page, although even not for a while, Many of the contemporary accounts of this that I read, most of it were on the second page. But, Mm -hmm. you know, things were already beginning to change. And this is one of the stories that did that and as a result changed American journalism. So the newspapers have like drummed up all this interest in this event, of course, to sell newspapers. But so then by the time of Richard's trial on June 2nd, so many people were interested that on that opening day, over 6,000 people crowded into the courtroom building, anxious to follow along. The New York Daily Sun fully reveals the hysteria surrounding this particular case from their own reporting a couple days later, quote, Since April, when the murder was committed, the press has teemed with all the details of this dire event. The arrest and examination of the accused, the evidence before the coroner's jury, the police examination, so that no part of the testimony thus far has developed any new fact or given any new coloring to the case. (laughs) So they're basically admitting, we've covered this
1: in every conceivable detail. So thousands of people clamored to get into this courtroom... What did they see? What did they witness in the courtroom? Well, let me
2: identify two individuals that they would have seen, two individuals of note, because they both just happened to be named Ogden. And since I doubt we will ever have a show where there's two, two Ogdens? Co- where there's two people named Ogden, I, I must make, n- make note of them at this time. Please clear this up. <laughs> well, the judge in the case was named Ogden Edwards. He was overseeing the trial. He was a cousin of Aaron Burr. You know, he was a very respected individual in New York at the time, but this case really worked his last nerve. His voice was hoarse by the whole end of the trial as the room filled to overflowing every single day. He often spent half his time just crying out, order in the court. Who was he shouting at? Well, one of the people he was shouting at was the other Ogden, Ogden Hoffman, who was representing Robinson in this case. Ah, the defense attorney. The defense attorney, a native New Yorker, and an early member of the Whig Party, incidentally, which was just sprouting up around this time. A very respected lawyer, and Robinson was able to hire him because of Robinson's boss, You know, the owner of the store that he worked at, that he clerked at. Hoxie, yeah. Because Hoxie's reputation was also affected by this case.
1: Well, sure, he was a clerk. Now, speaking of wigs, I, <laughs> we should probably also note that Robinson had gone bald at this time and was wearing a wig himself.
2: Sudden baldness does seem like a a strangely weird and mysterious detail (laughs) all of a sudden. So perhaps unsurprisingly, first on the stand would be Rosina Townsend. She would be the first to testify.
1: Rosina, who ran the brothel?
2: As newspapers would describe her, quote, She is a shrewd, intelligent woman, apparently 30 years of age, with a clear, full voice, unembarrassed air, and a countenance agreeable without being handsome.
1: That is some penny press shade right there.
2: <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to be described as that. Anyway, she testified that on Saturday nights, Helen usually had Bill Easy over mm-hmm. um, as a kind of a regular for Saturday nights. But on this particular night, Helen had told Rosina not to let Bill Easy into the house, that she had a prior appointment. Indeed, at 9 p.m., Rosina let in Richard Robinson. By 11 o'clock, she went upstairs and she served them a bottle of champagne. By midnight, she had gone to sleep, only to be awakened at 3 a.m. by the sound. And that's when she came out into the parlor and saw the lamp sitting there and then went up, of course, and found Helen's body.
1: So that's Rosina's testimony. Did other women from the brothel also testify? They did indeed. And most of them
2: cooperated her story. And so they were all essentially pointing fingers at Robinson, as being the prime suspect.
1: Well, there were also a couple other peculiar things that happened in the case that looked really bad for Richard Robinson. You know, aside from the bald spot, the miniature, remember we talked about the miniature of him? Mm -hmm. Well, he had loaned it off to Helen, of course, and it was discovered in their correspondence that he was asking for it back. He really wanted this back. The day of the murder, her maid... Her cleaning lady remembered cleaning off the miniature and placing it in Helen's dresser. Well, when the police investigated Robinson's room in his boarding house, they found the miniature back in his possession. So somehow, he was able to get it back from her. Meanwhile... He had white paint on his leg. What was that from? Well, his boss testified that actually they also had crates that were painted the same color in the shop and that perhaps some rubbed off on his leg. But what about that hatchet? The hatchet that looked like it came from his job that he had just carelessly borrowed from work to use as a murder weapon and then discarded in the backyard. Well, it was a rather common hatchet and anybody could have purchased it. Now,
2: the further along the case went, the newspapers who were reporting this and, you know, trying to get people to buy their papers, well, they all kind of took sides. The New York Herald, which was owned by James Gordon Bennett, for instance, believed that Robinson was being framed and that he was innocent and that someone else had come in and murdered Helen Jewett. Other newspapers, like the New York Sun, well, they believed that he had been the murderer and that poor, innocent Helen Jewett had been grossly taken advantage of in this story. And a lot of the descriptions of her are of a virtuous woman gone astray. And so a lot of the morals of the day are being projected onto these two individuals within the pages of these newspapers.
1: Newspapers that were taking different positions partially to differentiate themselves from each other and offer Mm -hmm. their readers a reason to buy them. So as
2: a result, New Yorkers themselves took sides and often along gender divides. Many women in New York saw her as a victim and began consolidating in support of her, of her memory, by wearing white fur hats with black crepe ribbons. Now, these hats came to be called Helen Jewett mourners. This was actually a a, a look, the Mm. Helen Jewett mourner. And women would often sit together in unity in the courthouse And you would also see them together walking on the street. It was a kind of a form of solidarity.
1: Uh Uh-huh. So there were those present then who supported Rosina's story. Did Robinson also have his supporters? He sure did,
2: because he sort of represented the sporting men of the city, the young men who were carousing. And, you know, a lot of people saw themselves in his predicament. These sporting men on like a Friday night when they saw women with these mourners would go up and openly mock them. So it was a, it was a mm. very frightening time. The city was very, very tense. Robertson, though, also inspired a fashion craze. He, in court, I guess because he was losing his hair, wore a flat-rimmed hat that became rather popular with the dandies of the city. So all the hysteria and attention around this case emanated out of New York. And as a result, the story became very popular in newspapers across the country. And all these other papers were experiencing this penny press phenomenon, keep in mind. And so they were looking for these juicy stories. And how juicy is this like sort of a a sex scandal murder in debauched old New York City? As a result, these figures in the story became national figures. For instance, in Albany, a man who looked like the illustration of Richard Robinson, do you write he's like we don't have photographs, so it was just an illustration, a man that looked like that was mobbed in the street by supporters and well-wishers. It was just an ordinary guy, but he was being treated like a rock star.
1: Wow. And by well-wishers, that's also a little bit disturbing, too.
2: Hatred of Rosina Townsend was also a common theme, weirdly and sadly enough. This was widespread enough that a, a militia in Massachusetts had fashioned her face upon a target and used it for
1: shooting practice. That's disturbing. So clearly people across the country were losing their minds and their sense of good taste. Yeah, and there was a lot
2: of support for Robinson. So the story was ripping New York and even America apart. So fortunately, it was a relatively short trial.
1: Right, it only lasted for a couple of days, and they were long days. But I should add, Greg, but probably the most damning evidence was that testimony that was offered by not just Rosina, but by all of the other women who were working here on Thomas Street, and whose testimony, it seemed, was not being taken very seriously and was not corroborated by any men. Now, remember, the brothel had not been only occupied by women that night. Most of those women had men staying overnight in their bedrooms. Hmm. Those men... At the first cry of fire and the chaos that ensued um, upon the discovery of the body, most of those men sensed danger, not just to them physically, but to their own reputations, and fled the scene because they didn't want to be associated in any way with a crime taking place in a brothel. This made it very difficult then for the police and for the prosecutor, an attorney named Phoenix, to ask the men to take the stand and to testify against Robinson. So they didn't know who any of the men were, that is the craziest part of the story. They did know. The the women who worked there knew, of course, who their clients were. Mm-hmm. They knew how to get in touch with them. The prosecutor was actually considering the reputation of these men. Mm. It's like a boys club gone bad, mm-hmm. right? Everything was stacked against Helen here. When even the prosecutor doesn't want to bring men to the stand because he is considering the you know ramifications to their own reputations it's a pretty sad day and then meanwhile the women who are testifying are then being
2: diminished because of their occupation by no less than the
1: judge himself mr ogden judge ogden right Here's a quick passage from the book The Murder of Helen Jewett by Patricia Klein-Cohen. Judge Edwards took the final hour from 11 to just past midnight. They were, by the way, working long Mm -hmm. days. He took the, the final hour to sum up the case and instruct the jury. He began by reminding them that to convict, they had to agree beyond all reasonable doubt that Robinson was guilty. He told them that they had to weigh the character of the witnesses. And then he told them how much those characters weighed. The prostitutes, quote, "...are not to be entitled to credit unless their testimony is corroborated by others drawn from better sources." Testimony derived wholly from persons of this description without other testimony is not to be received. So the judge was basically turning to the jury and telling them, don't trust them. They are not reputable witnesses. And so what did the jury decide? Well, they returned within 30 minutes with an acquittal. 30 minutes? Yes, with an acquittal for Richard Robinson. He wept, the courtroom erupted into cheers, and he was led off to his own liberty. I think it's safe to say that there was an outcry in the public and in the press about how poorly handled this entire case was. You know, people speculated that perhaps the DA had been paid off, even maybe Mm -hmm. the judge had been paid off. So Robinson is a free
2: man to not live his life behind bars. I mean, whatever became of Robinson?
1: Well, he gained a lot of notoriety immediately, obviously, as somebody who had perhaps gotten away with murder. And he wasn't doing himself any favors either, because other things surfaced. Some other letters surfaced Hmm. that he had written, including just next month in July, some letters that he wrote to his friend William Gray surfaced and were published in the New York Herald and in the transcript. In these letters, um, he kind of talks about his own sort of seductive appeal to women and how much he loves seducing women. And he's writing to his friend, right, William, mm-hmm. who's engaged to marry a woman. And and Richard admits that he has already seduced and slept with this man's- His friend's fiance. Fiance, yes. And he said he will happily do it again in order to help his friend out and to put him at liberty to also go off and have his own affairs. He said, quote, just let me seduce your wife. And if your inclinations are are felon intent, she has no further claim on you. She will not be the first married woman who has felt my persuasive powers. What a Lothario. <laughs> yeah. A cad, as they call them. Yeah, I mean, this created another scandal in the press and did not really turn public sentiment toward him. (laughs) no, And he went back to Connecticut to live with his family. Then he accepted another invitation from a journalist to do a multi-day interview for him. A man was writing a 24-page pamphlet about Robinson and about the trial. And in this, he also proved himself to be really kind of a jerk, unsentimental about the passing of Helen. He even you know, questioned why anybody would use a hatchet. He said that if he were to do the job, he'd just do it with a knife. This is now taking some almost O.J. Simpson qualities here to the story. Weird, right? Mm-hmm. And and not helpful to his cause. That month in July, Robinson moved west to start fresh. Like so many people before him who needed a new start, he headed west and he moved down to Texas he enlisted to fight in the Texas war against Mexico in August, but he was immediately thrown out because he proved himself not at all to be able to be an adequate soldier or take direction from anybody else. So he moved to the small town of Nacogdoches, Texas, where he changed his name to Richard Parmalee. Parmalee was his mother's maiden name Mm -hmm. and he ran a saloon and worked as the clerk of courts, and that was his kind of new life. He lived there for nearly 20 years. Almost a decade after moving there in 1845, he married a woman named Atala Hotchkiss, who was a wealthy young widow, only 25 at the time, who had a large estate, and they had a prominent house in the middle of town. He would travel back and forth to Connecticut to visit his family, And it was on one of these trips in August of 1855, when he was traveling back to Connecticut by boat along the Ohio River, where he got very sick, and he had to stay in a hotel in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was there on August 8th that Richard Robinson died, and there were some reports that in his final hours, he was still feverishly ranting and raving about Helen Jewett.
2: Visit our blog, com for images of New York from the 1830s and many illustrations which ran in publications regarding the murder of Helen Jewett and the trial of Richard Robinson.
1: For more on this also, we would recommend a couple books that we both found helpful— I enjoyed The Murder of Helen Jewett by Patricia Klein Cohen, a fabulous story that recreates New York in the 1830s. And of course, the classic book by Timothy Guilfoyle, City of Eros, which is about
2: New York's relationship with the with the oldest occupation in the world.
1: I also spent a few hours yesterday at the New York Public Library reading through some old pamphlets that had been published Right after the death of Helen Jewett, as publishers were capitalizing on the tragedy, again, big thank you to the librarians, uh, the research librarians at the public library for their help in tracking those down. We'll be talking about some of those in our Patreon Extra Again, if you would like to join us with your support of the show, visit patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can join in and get an extra little Patreon bonus podcast for almost every show that we put out.
2: And congratulations to our Patreon supporter, Dwayne, who successfully answered our trivia question and got a signed copy of our book, The Bowery Boys' Adventures in Old New York. Also visit our blog because we have a couple major live appearances that are in our future in March and April. I'm doing something with Atlas Obscura, and then in in March. And then in April, Tom and I will be kicking off our 10th anniversary celebration at NYC PodFest. And so we want all of you there. The date of that is Sunday, April 9th. Go to our blog, barryboyshistory.com, for more information on both of those events.
1: Thank you so much for taking this journey back to gaslit New York of the 1830s.
2: Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.